God, you are great, and you are greatly to be praised. We know of nothing better to do than to simply behold you. We thank you that you've revealed yourself to us, that we might do just that. And so this morning, as we continue to do that, alongside our brothers and our sisters, we pray that we would see that you satisfy us in a way that nothing else can. So fill us with joy, we pray. Fill us with hope. And help us to do that even as we read through and think about and reflect on a difficult book like Ecclesiastes. So bless your people with your word, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Y'all can go ahead and have a seat. Well, are you ready for your unencouraging thought for the day? I wonder if maybe as long as we're in Ecclesiastes, maybe we ought to start each Sunday with this as a way to keep ourselves grounded. I don't know, Justin, you think that's doable? Um, just kidding. If you're a guest with us, if this is your first or second time, we are in the book of Ecclesiastes. Um, and Ecclesiastes is um, a little less encouraging than, than some books are. And so I wasn't completely joking. I do actually want to start our time right now uh, with a thought that maybe isn't so encouraging. And so I've got a, a question for you. Uh, when was the last time you stopped and thought about just how many things in your life you keep doing over and over and over and over and seem to make no discernible progress on. So if you're an adult, have you thought about how each month you have to pay your electric bill and your water bill, and you know what happens the next month? You pay it again. And the next month, you pay it again. If you're a student... Your teacher sends you with homework. You hopefully do it that night. You bring it back, turn it in the next day, and what do you get? You get more homework. And then you do it, and you turn it in, and you get more homework. You make your bed in the morning only to unmake it at night, only to remake it in the morning and unmake it, remake it over and over. Not much progress. You build a a chicken house, a chicken coop, and a tree falls on it, and you get to build it again. You go wash your car, and you park it, and the little aphids drop the sticky stuff all over it again, and you have to wash again. How many things are there in your life that you do over and over and over and over and seem to make no progress on? I think it's more than we like to admit, and it's enough that I think it leaves us feeling a bit discouraged or weary or maybe frustrated might be a good word for us. So here's what I want to do. Go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Ecclesiastes chapter 3. And we're going to do the the whole chapter this morning. Uh, We're going to break this up into two sections. The first will be verses 1 through 15, and we will be thinking about the endless circle that the world keeps spinning in. And in verses 16 through 22, we will reflect on the disordered world, the brokenness that is our place of living. So Ecclesiastes 3, I'm going to start in verse 1. Here's what the preacher says. For everything, there is a season 
and a time for every matter under heaven. A time to be born and a time to die. A time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted. A time to kill and a time to heal. A time to break down and a time to build up. A time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance. A time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together. A time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. A time to seek and a time to lose. A time to keep and a time to cast away. A time to tear and a time to sow. A time to keep silence and a time to speak. A time to love and a time to hate. A time for war and a time for peace. What gain has the worker from his toil? I've seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He's made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he's put eternity into man's heart. Yet, so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. I perceived that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also, that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all of his toil. This is God's gift to man. I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. That which is, already has been. That which is to be, already has been. And God seeks what has been driven away. Moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness. And in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time for every matter and for every work. I said in my heart with regard to the children of man that God is testing them, that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beasts is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath, and man has no advantage over the beasts, for all is vanity. All go to one place, all are from the dust, and to the dust all return. Who knows whether the spirit of man goes up and the spirit of the beast goes down into the earth? So I saw that there is nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. Who can bring him to see what will be after him? Well, if you've never read Ecclesiastes, or if you're not very familiar with the book, you may be a bit familiar with chapter 3. Particularly the first few verses are um, probably the most popular, most well-known verses in all of Ecclesiastes. Uh, They were made even more popular, more famous um, back in the day when the birds put out a hit song called Turn, Turn, Turn. Um, You've, I'm sure, all heard that. Uh, I know there are also some hunters and fishermen uh, who, when they take a fish or a deer, will quote Ecclesiastes 3 as a way of kind of helping wrap their minds around and giving order and frame to a time to live and a time to die. Um, 
And so this is something that we are familiar with, this circularness of the world. And, and typically, this back and forth, season for this, and a season for that, and then a season again for this, is something that's thought of as something encouraging, something that helps us understand order in the world around us, something that helps us find meaning, uh, even in the Lion King. The circle of life is something that is meant to give purpose and meaning. There's a time for one king to rule, and then Mufasa dies, and there's a time for another king, Simba, to take the throne. And the, the movie tells right the story of this attempt to transition, and Simba's trying to find his place in the circle of life. And this circle is intended to give you meaning and purpose as an important car, if you might think of, in a long train. And so where is your identity? Where is your purpose? Well, you belong in a, a system. You're part of a long train. And, and the thinking goes, if you were to try to pull your car out and do life on your own, things won't go very well. If you try to go seek glory and, and purpose and value for your own life on your own, separated away from the larger circle of life, from your train, uh, things won't go well. And so you ought to find your purpose. You ought to find joy, not in that you exist on your own on an island, but that you exist as part of a larger family, that you, in fact, maybe are a part of this circle. Well, to this jolly merriment, hopefulness of circleness, the preacher says, not so. You see, the whole finding your meaning in a larger train Ecclesiastes would say, works if the train is going somewhere. If the train is moving a direction, then you as a part of it can find some encouragement that you are going there. But if the train is on its way to nowhere, then simply being a part of this circle of life isn't actually encouraging. And to prove his point, the preacher does what I think all of us do when we're in an argument and want to prove a point. He trots out some really impressively balanced poetry. Is that not what you do in your arguments? No? Maybe that's why you keep losing your arguments. So next time you find yourself in an argument, prepare ahead of time a little bit, come up with some poetry, and when you respond back with poetry, people won't question you anymore and you will win your case. Let me show you what I mean. So Ecclesiastes 3, I want you to look at verses 2 through 8. There's seven verses here. Seven's a, a nice, good biblical number. And each verse, you'll notice, has four items in it. So if you look at verse 2, you see there's a time to be born, a time to die, a time to plant, and a time to pluck up what is planted. And these four, I mentioned balanced a minute ago, they're really neatly balanced. And so the first line, you've got a time to be born and a time to die. And the next line mirrors it. So with a time to be born, there's a time to plant, and with a time to die, there's a time to pluck up that which is planted. If you look at the next verse, it's the same thing. Kill and heal, you have those two times, and then mirroring those two times, along with kill, there's a time to break down, and along with healing, there's a time to build up. And this keeps going all the way through this passage. It's balanced. He sees that there is this back and forth. 
One is born, one dies, one is born, one dies. You plant your crops, you pull up what you planted. You plant your crops, you pull up what you planted. On and on and on this cycle goes. But I want you to notice how the preacher responds to this back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. Look at verse 9. He says this. What gain has the worker from his toil? The world goes around and around and around, and the preacher asks, to what end? Several thousand years later, here we still sit. Being born, dying, planting, plucking up, and all for what? The preacher assumes the answer to the question, what gain has the worker from his toil? He assumes the answer is nothing. Over and over and over, the loop starts and it returns. It's like a giant merry-go-round that you and I are all trapped on. It spins and it spins and it spins and it spins, but it never goes anywhere. Much like a merry-go-round, it's just almost enough to make you sick. And not only this, but he presses on. In verse 10, he seems to catch maybe a little bit of optimism. He notices that God has given the children of man work to be busy with. In verse 11, he says that everything is beautiful in its time, even that he's put eternity into man's heart. We have this hunger, this longing to see something larger in our world that we can see from where we sit. But notice what he says. Even these gifts only serve to create further frustration. Look at the end of verse 11. Yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. We have this hunger to know and understand, and all of it just boils down to the fact that we can't know and understand. Everything just seems to keep on spinning and spinning and spinning. In fact, it's this chase after this larger knowledge that often leaves God's people in a difficult situation. So you remember the story of Job. Job receives all of these tragedies that come his way, and he wants to know why? He asks God all these questions. His friends who aren't good friends show up and pile on, and God finally speaks at the end of the book from a whirlwind, a rather intimidating place to speak from. And God, surprisingly maybe, doesn't answer Job's question, but reminds Job of who he is. His response to Job is, where were you when I created. Who are you? God tells Job, stay in your lane. Adam and Eve, remember this in the garden? They're placed in the garden, and there's this tree that kind of draws them to it. It's called the tree of knowledge of good and evil. They want to grasp what God hasn't given them to grasp. Finally, they do, and they're banished from the garden and death sets in. It's this hunger, this thirst for knowledge that's larger than us 
that can lead to frustration. And so what is one to do here? Look what the preacher says in verses 12 and 13. In this round and round, round and round world we live in, the job for us is to be joyful, to do good as long as we live, to take pleasure in eating and drinking, and, did you catch that? Take pleasure in your toil. In our world, blessings come and blessings go. Your ice cream cone, as we talked about a couple weeks ago, will melt. Your kids will grow up and they will move out. Your health will fail and the lights will go out. How's that for an optimistic, encouraging thought? So what do we do in this moment? Well, we enjoy the little things that God has given us. We find contentment and joy in recognizing and appreciating the little things that God has put in our life, the food that we have to eat. Food is not simply something to eat so that you can move on and get to the next thing so you have energy. Food is a gift from God that ought to be received with thankfulness and joy. Our time is the same. Even work, he says, is something that can be received rather than just mandatorily given. Even in your toil, he says, we can find work. This sounds, by the way, a lot like what we saw last week. Remember this? At the end of of chapter 2, he's gone on his long list of things that haven't produced meaning or hope or joy. And then he says, what are we to do? Eat and drink. This is, by the way, the same place that he ends in verse 22. And this looks a lot like where he ends the whole book at the end of chapter 12. It's a a theme that the preacher continues to go back to over and over and over. So our task, he says, instead of becoming frustrated and wearied by the world just spinning over and over and over, is to find contentment and hope, even joy, in the little things that God has given us. And so taking a deep breath, the preacher pivots his gaze. And so away from everything spinning over and over repeatedly, not going anywhere in the first 15 verses, he then looks to something else that causes him trouble in his heart, and he looks at how disordered the world is. And the preacher notices something that Paul knew. The preacher notices that humans, surprise, surprise, tend to be rather selfish. You know the passage in, in Romans 3, Paul hit this note, Ecclesiastes 3 hits this note, and Ecclesiastes notes not only do we tend to be selfish in our individual lives, but when we come together and do things together, guess what shows up? Our selfishness. And so the preacher looks to the place where the selfishness is supposed to be reigned in. He, he looks to the courts. He looks to the places of justice and righteousness. And what does he see that causes him pain in his heart? He sees that in those places they've been exchanged for evil. 
Not only do we do this in our personal lives, but we do this when we gather together. He notices that God's judgment actually serves to only show that we are beastly. And and speaking of, of beastly, something else that's disordered about the world that he notices is he actually says there's no advantage to being human over being a beast. So in, in verse 9, he asks the question, what gain, what benefit do we get from our work? And the implied answer was nothing. Here in verse 19, he, he makes a comparison between beasts and humans, and he actually answers the question. He says there's no benefit between humans and beasts. This also reflects a little bit what we saw last week in chapter 2, right? In chapter 2, he says, he asked, what advantage is there for being wise over being foolish? Both have to give up all their toys. Both die. What gain is there? Here in chapter 3, he asks the same question, but he swaps out the foolish for beasts, and he swaps out the wise for humans. He notes that both beasts and humans die. They both come from dust and return to dust. Both of them, God takes back the life breath that he gave to them, and in the end, the preacher notices that beasts and humans aren't all that different. And so to that, he asks the question, what do we do? And he returns with the same answer that he had in the first section. Look at verse 22. He said, so I saw that there is nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work for that is his lot. Who can bring him to see what will be after him? Because you will die, because you will turn to dust, because God will take back the life breath that he gave you, your task, the preacher says, is to find joy in your work. Now, if you think all of this sounds a lot like what we saw last week, Good job paying attention. It does. What has been will be, and what will be has been. And so in in chapter 2, we saw that this focus on the preacher working to gather and own as much stuff as he could. And so he, he built uh, houses, and he built, planted vineyards, and he gathered servants and slaves and tried to gather wisdom, and he worked on owning as much as he could, and he found that in owning and gathering all of these things, he didn't find meaning or purpose. He found that it was all vanity. And he said, instead of pursuing ownership and dominance over all of these things, instead, you ought to find joy in eating and drinking, in your work, in the little things. And in chapter 3, he raises the same question, and he says, "Uh, I've worked hard trying to understand these large things in life. Why does the world work the way that it does? Why is everything spinning and spinning and spinning and never going anywhere? Why is there so much brokenness in the world? Surely I can fix it. And he found that in trying to discern all of that, he found that he was no better than the beasts. He found that there's no meaning in that, that the only meaning, that the only hope comes from enjoying the little things that God has given to you. 
And so pursuing ownership and dominance over things leaves you just as equally dead as a foolish person who owns nothing. And pursuing understanding over everything leaves you just as frustrated and just as dead as an animal who understands nothing. These are hard words. I remember the, the first week we were in Ecclesiastes, Pastor Justin mentioned that this book must hurt us before it can heal us. And so let me give you an image that I would like you to take with you. I want you to think about the tide of the ocean. It comes in and it goes out. In and out. Day after day, month after month, year after year, it does the same thing over and over and and it, it looks like it doesn't actually accomplish anything. However, um, now that we have Google, we can learn that the tide actually does accomplish something really valuable for the coastlands. I want you to imagine, though, that you find yourself on a vacation at the beach before Google exists. And you notice that the tide keeps coming in and going out. And you find yourself bothered that something so apparently meaningless would keep happening over and over and over and over again. And the whole time that you're at the beach, you spend scratching your head, watching it closely, trying to see if if maybe this time it comes in, it does it a little bit differently. Or maybe it leaves something new. You spend the whole time that you're at the beach trying to figure out why it's doing this thing and what benefit it gives to the coast. And your vacation ends. It's time to go back to work. You pack your stuff and you go home. Might I suggest you've wasted your vacation? You go back frustrated, wearied, annoyed, frustrated that the thing just keeps going around and around and around to nowhere. When the whole time what you should have been doing is paying attention watching the sun set below the horizon, seeing the beauty of the waves come in, seeing the fresh, clean sand that's left when it goes back out, enjoying the crisp, cool water along your legs, and resting from all of your work. If you don't do those things, You've not enjoyed the gift that God has given you. Instead, you went searching for knowledge that wasn't yours. In a similar way, I think this is effective for how we see our world. It is easy for us to get so frustrated at the way things are, at how things keep happening over over and over. We have to keep doing the same things and our kids keep doing the same problems and we keep having that same health stuff rise up and everything seems to happen over and over. We we can become so frustrated with that. We can look out and see how broken our world is and become so annoyed with that, so desiring to change that ourselves that we can miss the good things that God has placed before us. We find ourselves at the beach trying to figure out why the tide is doing what it's doing instead of enjoying what God has actually given to us. And we, by the way, sit in, in a little bit of a better position, I think, than the preacher. 
um, maybe we are, are on the other side of having Google enabled to look things up because we have the benefit of understanding at least a little bit of the whys of some things. We know that Jesus has come. We know that Jesus has brought forgiveness. We know that Jesus has promised to remake all that's broken. And we don't have all the answers to be sure. But we have some. And we certainly have enough to know that what appears on the surface as meaningless actually produces good and that our God isn't just absentee landlord looking the other way, but is busy and at work bringing about what he intends to bring about for our good and for his glory. And so when you find yourself frustrated at the constant state of decay that everything is in, I want you to picture the tide. There are beautiful things to enjoy and to appreciate. If your hope is that you will build something that will last, give it up. If your hope is that you will fix what's broken, give it up. In that sense, stop dreaming so big. But our world tells us that you can do anything if you work hard enough. You know that's a lie? You can't. It, it's not true. You'll have some dreams that just aren't attainable. And that might at first sound discouraging. But let me suggest to you that I actually believe it's encouraging because it frees you from trying to be something that you can't. It frees you from trying to resolve problems that you don't have the power to and instead to restingly trust that God will do what God says he will. So let me encourage you. Wake up and enjoy the gifts that God has placed around you. He's given us so many things that we ought to enjoy and appreciate, but we find ourselves not doing that because we find ourselves distracted by things that aren't actually our business. So church, Christian, stay in your lane. Enjoy the good things that God has given you, and don't be overly burdened and bothered by the things that aren't yours. Pray with me. God, you rule and you reign. That's your job. And that's what you do. And we do neither. So forgive us for trying to clamor after and grab things that aren't ours. Forgive us for being frustrated when we find that we can't grab things that aren't ours to begin with. And teach us to humbly trust you that you are the one that works all things out, that you give a season to everything that is, and that what appears meaningless and circular to us is actually working according to your good plan. 
So teach us to enjoy and appreciate the gifts that you've given to us. Keep us from being distracted by things that we ought not be. Help us to encourage and love one another with these words we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.